In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We are continuing with our sermon series through the Acts of the Apostles. By God's providence, we are in Acts, the end of Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through the conclusion of chapter 4 and then into verse chapter 5 verse 11. Let us hear now the word of the Lord. It is written. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now to him who loves us, who's freed us from our sins by his blood to Jesus Christ, be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Last Sunday, we looked at some aspects unique to the church of Jesus Christ, filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit, particularly in relation to how those in the church community care for one another. As this passage revealed to us last week, the early church took seriously their responsibility to each other as those who had been brought into union with each other through the Lord Jesus Christ. Their unity was not merely spiritual. It had very real implications in the material world. Becoming a Christian doesn't just mean we start claiming Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It doesn't just mean that we start to pray and read our Bible. It doesn't just mean that we start attending worship. Being brought into union with Jesus Christ through faith 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, touches every aspect of our lives. Everything gets reframed. Everything gets reevaluated and reoriented in relation to God. So we don't just develop some spiritual practices. How we view and spend our time, our money, our talents changes. The value we place on relationships change. How we love others changes. So Luke finds this passage to be a good place to introduce us to Joseph called Barnabas. We'll learn more about Barnabas throughout Acts, but here Luke presents him as a model of the radical generosity and genuine love for others that comes when one places his faith in Jesus Christ and is born again and is filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke tells us that he sold a piece of property and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet in order to provide for the needs of those who were without financial resources. Luke isn't content with just telling us this practice existed. He gives us the name of one who is exhibiting this sort of faithfulness. But if we remember, Luke doesn't intend to present the church community as an end to itself. Their sharing material possessions with one another isn't just to create a wonderful community for them to enjoy for themselves, isolated from the world around them. Caring for one another is an outworking of the Holy Spirit in their midst. It's a response to the grace of God given to them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it doesn't distract them or prevent them from living out their calling to go out into the world to live as witnesses to the risen Lord Jesus. Rather, it is a means by which they obey Jesus and give witness to his living presence and his abiding power in their midst. And Luke will reveal to us throughout Acts that Joseph, who was given the nickname Barnabas, which we are told means son of encouragement, was every bit as committed to proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth as he was being one who freely and generously gave of himself to the church community. His encouragement within the church community was always coupled with an exhortation outside the church community. So he was a good example to lift up here. He was committed to the church community. He was committed to the evangelization of the world. So through Barnabas' example, Luke provides for us a portrait of what the church of God should be. In the words of St. Ignatius, it was a church worthy of God, worthy of honor, worthy of congratulation, worthy of praise, worthy of success, worthy of purity, preeminent in love, walking in the law of Christ and bearing the Father's name. In short, it was a church worthy to be called the church. It was a church filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with grace, filled with power, committed to giving glory to God through its love of one another, but also committed to reaching out to the world in the love of God. But it wasn't all sunshine and roses, was it? Lest we get the impression that the church was 
a perfect fellowship without any issues, Luke shares with us a humbling story that awakens us to the reality of life in a fallen world, even within the community of faith. After telling us of Barnabas, who lives up to his nickname, Luke presents us with a contrast. This is why the first word of chapter 5 is but. He says, here is Barnabas, a model of faithfulness, but. But also present in this faith community was Ananias and Sapphira. This husband and wife couple also had sold a piece of property for the purpose of giving the proceeds to the church. Things start well, don't they? But Luke reveals that they did not bring all of the proceeds to give to the church. Luke tells us that Ananias and Sapphira together selfishly schemed to hold some of this money back for themselves even as they gave the impression that they were giving the entirety of the proceeds from the sale of the property to the apostles. In other words, they schemed to embezzle some of the money for themselves that they had apparently already dedicated to the faith community. Peter, though, somehow became aware of this scheme, and he calls them out on it. First, Ananias And then a few hours later, his co-conspirator, Sapphira. And what happens? They both drop over dead when they are confronted. I think we get what is the cause of their deaths, but I just want us to be clear at this point. We are meant to see that their deaths are the result of God's judgment upon them. Everything in this passage points to this. The way their deaths are described, both immediately fell down and breathed their last. Their unusually quick burials. Burials were a big deal in that culture, as they still are today. Only criminals and those who were under the judgment of God were buried so quickly and without ceremony. Their deaths are, without doubt, presented as a divine judgment. Now, we might look at this story and think, what a strange, strange story. We might also think their punishment seems rather severe, right? They were, after all, giving money to the church, were they not? It might not have been all of what they sold their property for, but they were generous enough to sell their property and give some of the proceeds to the church. So why are they both struck dead in judgment? We need to understand what Luke is revealing to us here. Luke draws into sharp focus that the issue was not about the money per se. As we discussed last week, Ananias and Sapphira were under no obligation to sell the property, nor were they duty-bound to give all of the proceeds to the common fund being managed by the apostles. What really mattered is that they lied. They told the apostles that they were giving them all of the money when, in fact, they were not. They were keeping some for themselves but they wanted to give the impression that they were offering all the money because they wanted to give the appearance of being like Barnabas. 
They wanted others to look at them as charitable, as righteous, as loving, as selfless, as holy, even though they weren't. So they lacked not only honesty, but also integrity. And we need to see it for what it was then. It was premeditated deception. It was premeditated deception for the purpose of creating a pious pretense. As one of the commentators labels them, they were exposed as a religious sham, simulated holiness, Christian fraud. And yet, we might wonder, is pious pretense really deserving of death? Can you really blame Ananias in a community that valued radical generosity? He wanted to appear generous, even as he secured a little nest egg for he and his wife. Is this such a terrible thing? It wasn't like he killed someone, right? It wasn't like he stuck his hand in the offering plate and stole money that others had given for the poor, right? Come on. We have known people to do far worse things and not be struck dead for it. And it might seem strange and excessively severe to us because we don't really look at their sin as being all that serious. But if we think about, if we think that this is a strange story, if we think that this is a harsh punishment by God, then we have misunderstood the severity of sin and the holiness of God. Sin has no place in the presence of holiness. Peter makes clear that sin, that this sin, however small it might seem to us, was a sin against God. It wasn't merely an act of deceit against the church, although it was. It was a sin against the Lord of the church. It was a lie against the Holy Spirit who created and filled and sustained and empowered the church. And it came at a critical moment in the life of the church. It was a critical time in salvation history, a time in which the church of Jesus Christ is being established on the earth and is tasked with giving witness to the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ through not only their proclamation of the gospel, but through their life together. So just as God had done at other times in salvific history, God delivers here a decisive judgment against sin among his people. It should recall to our minds the sin of Achan and Joshua 7, at a time in which God's people should have been relying on God's provision and obeying his word, these people who had experienced God's saving power, been brought into a covenant relationship with God by his grace, had witnessed God fight on their behalf, Achan explicitly disobeyed God and secretly took what was not his. Some of the things from the destruction of Jericho that God had instructed to be destroyed with the city. But God alerts Joshua to this offense, and when Achan is discovered to have committed this sin, he is himself destroyed. Again, is taking something that is going to be destroyed really that bad? But just as Achan death was meant to warn God's people to the seriousness of sin and the danger of idolatry. 
as they came into the promised land, the death of Ananias and Sapphira was meant to do the same for the church, the new covenant people of God. God warns those who count themselves as members of his covenant community against hypocrisy. Sin has no place in the presence of holiness and hypocrisy has no place among God's people. So as we think about the severity of God's judgment here, we must also consider how God views his people and their relationship to him in the world. And unfortunately, within a community that proclaims the grace of God to sinners, the temptation is to have an attitude of laxity in relation to the seriousness of sin. It's a very real threat. God sending his own son to suffer and die for the forgiveness of sins for the ill-informed means that sin is no longer of any concern. Jesus's sacrifice on the cross gets misinterpreted as an appeasement that leads God to become tolerant of all sin. Sin simply becomes covered by God's grace. And God's love removed from the context of his holiness becomes his primary attribute. And so this belief that God is gracious to forgive sin leads to sinning with an expectation of forgiveness. But anyone who takes this passage seriously is forced to acknowledge that blatant acts of rebellion against God with an expectation of forgiveness is presuming on the grace of God. And this is what Ananias and Sapphira have done here. They have presumed on God's grace and have thus tested him. What exactly can they get away with? How much sin will God allow? This is what God's people did in the wilderness, and they received God's judgment. So too do Ananias and Sapphira here. So this event sends a very clear message. God will not be mocked. Sin will not be tolerated. He is a holy God who demands integrity from his people, not only because they are called to be holy as he is holy, but because it is vital to the church's mission that she give faithful witness to who God is. This event is meant to be an unmistakable declaration that the church is called to carry a message, a message that we declare is true. But can you trust, can you trust the truthfulness of a message if the ones giving it lack integrity, lack trustworthiness? And to some degree, we have to recognize that those who make up the church are not going to be without sin. We will not be perfect. But what does it say of the message and the sender if the messenger, the church, who is called to embody the message, tolerates sin and takes it lightly within the community of faith? What does it say if truth is not valued, if lies are allowed to go unconfronted? Furthermore, can there be unity in the church without honesty? And how can a community that is called to give witness to God, is called to give witness to the reality of the risen Lord Jesus by living in the power of the resurrection by the Spirit, is called to give witness to the character of God, a God of truth, a God of righteousness, a holy God. How can a community that is called to these things be effective in its witness, all the while allowing those in its community to live in unrepentant sin? 
So Peter confronts and God judges. We as God's people should understand that far from revealing God to be tolerant of sin, Jesus' death on the cross reveals the horror of sin, the heinousness of sin. It reveals how awful it is to God that it would require the death of his beloved son to pay its cost, to bring about forgiveness and reconciliation. The cross then represents God's judgment against sin. Sin, therefore, should never be taken lightly. God does not take lightly that which destroys his creatures created in, in his image. God does not take lightly that which was the cause of his son's death. He does not take lightly that which is rebellion against him in an offense to his holiness. And even as we marvel at God's graciousness to us, that even while we were yet enemies, sinners, that he would not, even spare his own son to redeem us from our sin. Even as we marvel at that, we should not presume upon God's grace. He is a holy God who has made in his grace, by his grace, a way for us in Jesus Christ, according to his love, his justice, his righteousness. And frankly, his holiness should cause us to tremble as Isaiah did when he discovered himself in the presence of Almighty God. Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, who understood himself to be a sinner, reckoned himself done for when he found himself in God's holy presence. We too, like Isaiah, should fear God. It is healthy to fear God, to recognize his power, his righteousness, his justice, his holiness, which includes his intolerance of sin. And we should tremble before him, recognizing ourselves to be weak and miserable sinners, unworthy of being in his presence, unworthy of his grace and mercy, unworthy of his love. But the passage is telling us that we aren't to be like Ananias and Sapphira who didn't fear God, who came casually before him and his people thinking little of their own sin, believing that they could get away with their false pretense of piousness, assuming it was of no consequence to lie in their commitments to the church, presuming on God's grace but they made a serious miscalculation in testing God. And so, as one commentator points out, this narrative is bad news for anyone who would take a casual approach to entering the kingdom of God. Dearly beloved, the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira testify to us, we will not casually stroll into the kingdom of heaven. We will not carelessly stumble into God's presence taking sin lightly. There is a reason why Jesus declares in his Sermon on the Mount that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. This is contrasted with the gate that is wide and the way that is easy that leads to destruction. The way that leads to life is against the grain of all those who are barreling down the way that leads to destruction. The narrow way is countercultural, in other words. It's easy to drift along with what is happening in the world all around us. It's hard to move upstream, but we must. 
We must fight against the current. We must work to put sin to death in us. And God gives us the power in his spirit to do this. A power the early church very clearly had. This is what we are called to as his people. This is who we are called to be. The called out ones. Called out to worship God. Called out to live in holiness. Called out to shine the glory of God to the world. Called out to go as his people to be messengers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what the church is. The ecclesia. The word in the Greek we translate as church. It means called out. And it is hardly coincidence that this passage is the first time we see Luke use this word in Acts. It's the first time Luke uses this word in Acts. Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church. The church is a people who live in integrity, who fear the Lord, who desire to live in holiness in response to God's grace. But not everyone lives into the name given to them or the name they claim for themselves. Barnabas did, but Ananias and Sapphira did not. Ananias is Hebrew for God is gracious. Sapphira is Aramaic for beautiful. These are certainly names which match who we are as God's people. We are the people of God's grace. We have been made beautiful, having been washed clean by the blood of Christ. This is what God's word says about the bride of Christ. But this couple reveals that not all live into their names. They live lives very much in contradiction to their names. How about us? How about us? We live in a culture that has increasingly embraced its moral rot and decay. We as a culture have cast aside what has been determined to be outdated values that have been deemed oppressive. Morality has been redefined by what has been determined to be social justice causes. And let me be clear, there are justice issues that Scripture calls us to be concerned with. But social justice today is defined very specifically in our culture according to the philosophy of social Marxism, in which society has been divided by power structures in which one is either an oppressor or the oppressed. And one area that we have clearly observed this in recent years is with the sexual revolution. Those who have declared themselves to be sexually liberated, performing all sorts of perverted sexual behavior, have imagined themselves to be oppressed. They not only desire to engage in sexual immorality, but they also want the culture around them to embrace their sexual perversion. So sexual purity has been belittled and derided in the name of being liberated from outdated values that cultural progressives have deemed oppressive. And what has the church in America done at this point? Have we stood for truth? Not just in word, but also in deed. Have we sought purity? Have we desired holiness at the point of human sexuality? Have we presented a witness for the power of the resurrection in Jesus Christ, which includes victory over sin? Unfortunately, I think we would have to agree with those like Francis Schaeffer, 
whose assessment is that the church, even the self-identified evangelical church, has failed to stand for truth as truth and has accommodated herself to the spirit of the age. He calls this the great evangelical disaster, a lack of integrity to God's word, accommodation to the world. Just this week, an article came out sharing the results of a new Pew Research study about the attitudes of Christians toward casual sex, which is defined as sex between consenting adults who are not in a committed romantic relationship. So let's be clear. This survey is asking about views of engaging in sexual relations, not just outside of the covenant of marriage, but outside of any committed relationship. Now, I don't want to push that too far because sin is sin. But there is something that makes it more appalling to me that sex has been so cheapened that engaging in sexual relations with a complete stranger is seen as no big deal. And here's what the survey revealed. 50%. 50% of Christians say it's either always or sometimes okay to engage in casual sex. That number goes up to 57% if the two consenting adults are in a committed, albeit unmarried, relationship. Dearly beloved, this is not a small minority view in the church. And we might say, well, that survey probably includes a lot of people who claim to be Christians who aren't practicing the faith in any way. And it's true. The numbers go down among those who said they actually attend worship at least once a month. 36% of those individuals said casual sex is okay. This is the same percentage of self-identified evangelicals who believe it's okay. That is more than every one in three evangelicals. 46% of both of these groups believe sex is okay if it is in the context of a committed, albeit unmarried relationship. Dearly beloved, the Bible is not unclear about sexual sin. Why is it that we are so confused about this? Now, I don't mean to imply here that there is no forgiveness for sexual sin or that sexual sin is greater than all the other sins. There is, of course, forgiveness for those who recognize their sin, who confess it, and who repent of it. My point is that this is a point at which we have failed our calling and no longer can give faithful witness to a holy God. These numbers are appalling, and they reveal not just an attitude about casual sex. They reveal an attitude about casual sin. They reveal that we have allowed the culture to infiltrate the church of Jesus Christ. Sexual morality isn't the only area where there has been moral erosion in the church, is it? We have tolerated lies as necessary to accomplish what we have determined to be greater ends. We have exalted materialism and greed as a means to grow the economy and create prosperity. We've encouraged selfishness in the name of self-care in pursuing our personal dreams and goals. The list could go on and on and the ways in which the church looks exactly like the culture around us. It shouldn't surprise us that the culture takes sin lightly. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 what we were before we were saved by grace through faith. He says, you were dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is what it is. This is what is to be expected of those who live outside of Jesus Christ. Sin is no big deal because they don't understand themselves to be accountable to a holy God. The question is, what about us? Do we take sin lightly? The passage tells us this is exactly what Satan desires. Satan desires for the church to become ineffective in its mission. Satan desires to destroy God's church, if not from the outside, then from the inside, rotted at the core. He had tried in the previous chapter of Acts to destroy the church from the outside through persecution, but he failed. Now we find him trying to destroy it from the inside. Peter asked Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Because he is the father of lies who comes to deceive that he might steal, kill, and destroy. So he puts pressure on us from every side. And in our present culture, don't you dare question or push against the narrative of the world around you. If you do, you will be canceled. And in a culture like this, it's easy to begin to fear the world around us, fear getting canceled, fear losing our job or business, fear becoming an outcast, a social pariah, And so we begin to tolerate sin, become permissive of it. And eventually when our conscience has been dulled to the seriousness of sin, we begin to participate in it. What is one little lie? What are a few dollars here or there? What is one little selfish pleasure? And now we translate the wages of sin is death to refer to what we consider big sins. I didn't kill anyone. I didn't steal a million dollars. I didn't fill in the blank. This passage, though, stands as a vivid reminder that there are no big sins or little sins. There is only sin. Any transgression of God's law, any lack of conformity to God's law, and all of it is an offense to God's holiness. All of it results in death, whether it comes immediately or not. So we might be able to go about our sin secretly. We might be able to hide it from ourselves and we can lie to ourselves about its seriousness but God sees and knows and he will not be mocked our sin always finds us out but this passage gives us the answer fear God fear God we do not take sin lightly if we fear God We do not fear the world if we fear God. This was important in this moment in Acts, not only that the community was marked by unity and purity, it was also important that the community at this point feared God. It was the only way that the church would carry out its calling to proclaim the gospel in a world in rebellion to God in the midst of persecution and hardship. But this has not changed for us. 
If we are going to stand firm in the midst of, an er of eroding morality, if we're going to give faithful witness to the resurrected Lord Jesus and the power that comes in him, then this is a call of Acts 5. Fear God, if not through us. How will the world know the holiness of God? How will it understand the tremendous cost that has been paid to provide for the forgiveness of sins and the death of Christ on the cross? How will the world know that the cross does not give license to sin, but provides power to have victory over sin, to live in newness of life? How, if not through us? Dearly beloved, it needs to see through us that Jesus Christ died to set us free from sin. This is a critical moment. And may God give us the strength to turn from our sin. Stand against the culture and give faithful witness to him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us, we pray. Restore in us a sense of your holiness that we might live in a reverent fear of you. Grant to us a holy hatred of our sin that we might despise it and seek to put it to death. And reveal yourself through us to the world around us. May we be the light you have called us to be, providing illumination for goodness and truth and beauty. May we rest in your goodness and grace. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake that we pray these things. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe, saying together the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father. the community.